evidence and answers. What is the common explanation for the diversity of life on this earth? Most scientists and people state the evolutionary process of natural selection. Atheist and best-selling biologist Richard Dawkins states that the origin and diversity of life is not the result of an intelligent creator, but the result of natural selection and natural processes. However, could the mechanism of natural selection account for the diversity of life we see here on this earth? Scientist Dr. Paul Nelson puts this theory to the test and discovers natural selection falls short in several significant ways. In fact, the evidence points in another direction. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message comes from this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme was Science and Christianity, Enemies or Allies. And one of our featured speakers was Dr. Paul Nelson, who spoke on the topic, Could Evolution Build the Animals? Let's join Paul Nelson now as he puts Darwin's theory to the test and see if indeed evolution could account for the diversity of life or if there's a better alternative. A rather undifferentiated, simple organism come to have a name, I'll explain it in a moment, called Urbilateria. This was the original progenitor of all the animals. And then in the Cambrian explosion, these very different groups somehow evolved from that common ancestor. Now, this drawing represents a hypothetical construct. There's no actual fossil evidence for Urbilateria. The name Ur means original, the prefix, and bilateria means bilaterally symmetrical. So if you put a, you know, like a yardstick down the middle of me and looked on the left and looked on the right, in terms of my exterior anatomy, certainly I'm symmetrical. I've got an arm over here, an arm over here, an eye, an eye, and so forth. And it's a little bit hard to see in this cartoon or in this slide, but these forms are all bilaterally symmetrical. Although, as I said, the, drawing doesn't, the, the drawings here don't quite indicate that. So this is thought to be the original organism with that mirror symmetry on both sides. And there are two ways of representing it here. One's like a little, looks like a little inflatable, inflated balloon there. And this, this version has more details. There's eyes and a gut and some antennae and so forth. Again, there's no actual fossil evidence for that. The reason that that form is there on the slide is evolution needs some ancestor for the animals, some way to pull them all together into Darwin's tree. So that's what's postulated to be the common form. Now, you could look at that slide and say, well, I could imagine that original sort of schmoo, you know, that urbilateria may be turning into a more complicated creature. But I want to know, step by step, how did it happen? Well, actually, again, evolutionary biologists have known for a long time that that is unanswered. That question has not been answered. So in the late 80s, I actually met this biologist. He works in the United Kingdom, but he came to the University of Chicago, where I was a student, graduate student, to do a sabbatical. And at that time, in the late 80s, he was becoming increasingly unhappy with evolutionary theory, textbook theory. So in this publication, he says, look, we don't really know how body plans originate. And he said, the examples we have in our textbooks don't work. So this is an example that may be familiar to you, textbook example from high school or college biology. 
In England, during the Industrial Revolution, a lot of pollution was pumped out by factories burning coal, and that pollution darkened the landscape. It descended on trees, it descended on walls and surfaces, and made the, the landscape dark with coal dust or soot. These moths come in a variety of forms, morphs they're called, with different degrees of pigment in their wings, in their bodies. So you can see that as the landscape becomes darker, these light-colored moths will stand out against a dark background, whereas the dark-colored moths are much better camouflaged. Well, you're a bird flying along, you're a hungry bird flying along, you see that guy right there, it's like, okay, that's lunch. Let that happen generation after generation with the light-colored moths being eaten, and you know what will happen. The population as a whole will shift towards the dark end of the pigment spectrum. All right, what happened then in England when they cleaned up their pollution? Surfaces became lighter, and the population shifted back towards the light end of the spectrum. Now, that's another example of natural selection in action. These moths are in the same species, but, of course, they have different amounts of pigment, and what happens is you get this shift over time in the population. Now, what Arthur is saying is, yeah, that happens, but that doesn't explain where the moth itself came from which is really what we want evolution to tell us. Where did the moth itself come from? It's an important question to answer how the population shifted, sure, but we've left untouched the really important question, which is where do moths and birds and whales come from? Now, I said there'd be some biological detail here. The next few slides are a little technical, but I'll try to make them accessible to you. Where did the problem arise? Well, you can go back in evolutionary theory into the 20th century, into the 1930s, to an, a hypothesis that was made by people like this man here, Theodosius Dobzhansky. He was a very influential geneticist at Columbia University who actually trained one of my mentors at the University of Chicago. So I sort of stand in an intellectual lineage going back to Dobzhansky. And in his major work in 1937, he said, if we want to understand macroevolution, that is these big changes over long spans of time, we have a problem because we can't see long spans of time. We don't have access to them. So what are we going to do? How are we going to solve the problem? He said, what we take are the little chunks of time that we do have, a few generations here, a few generations there, and we extrapolate those out to what we can't see on the assumption that the evolution that we're able to observe is going to explain the evolution we can't observe. So to use sort of more conventional terms, the argument is micro or small-scale evolution over time extrapolates to large-scale evolution. But he knew this might be false because as a young man in Russia, as he was being trained in Russia, one of his mentors actually coined the terms micro and macro evolution. Yuri Filipchenko, who is a great geneticist, ended up getting killed by Stalin. But Filipchenko said there's a difference between the kind of evolution we can see, namely microevolution, and the kind we can't see, macro, and we actually need a word to describe that difference. So Dobzhansky is well aware this might not be true, so he says we're going to put a reluctant sign of equality between micro and macro, and that will be our working hypothesis. We'll take that as the basis of our theory, and we'll push ahead and see how far we can go with it. So the picture that he's describing looks something like this. You've got a starting population here, that green triangle. Let's say those are moths. Time is running this way. 
And Dobzhansky argues, just give me enough time, keep variation arising, keep natural selection operating, and I might get some evolution that I never expected. You know, the origin of something like C, which wasn't present down here, but since variation continues to arise and natural selection continues to operate, as these populations shift through time, you might see something you never expected, and that would be macroevolution. So that's the theory, that's the assumption. And the basic argument is that just give evolutionary process the time it needs, and as long as there's a steady supply of variation, macroevolution will, will occur. But in the back of his mind, so to speak, Dobzhansky is aware this might not work. Well, in the last 30 years, Evolutionary theory, there's our small-scale variation again. Evolutionary theory, I think, has discovered that, in fact, it doesn't work. And it's been described as a great Darwinian paradox. Now, I'll explain to you how this paradox operates. And if, if you remember this, if you go out of here tonight remembering this, this next few slides, you will be farther ahead than most professional biologists. Because most professional biologists, at least of my acquaintance, have not grasped this problem although they're coming to grasp it. All right, where did I get that phrase? Well, I got it from this guy, John McDonald, who's a geneticist at Georgia Tech. And in a paper that I read as a student, this is 30 years ago, so I had all my hair and was really skinny. <laughs> it's a long time ago. He said, at that time, 1983, I'm an undergraduate at the University of Pittsburgh studying evolutionary theory. He said, we have a problem. We have a problem with evolutionary theory that has led us to this paradox. Now, step back for a moment, put on your philosopher of science cap. How can an unsolved problem persist for so long in a science and not be solved? You know, if I told you that you could walk to Los Angeles from the dock here, the piers here in Honolulu, you wouldn't have to swim very far and you would say, you know what, Paul, it's just not going to work. It's just never going to happen. Or if I send you up an alley and there's a brick wall at one end and the, you know, it's, it's a dead end, you're not going to keep bashing your face into that wall. You're going to come back out of that alley and say, I'm sorry, I can't get to where you want me to go up that way. Eventually, when we run into problems in daily life and in science, we stop and turn around. Now, evolutionary theory has not done that. They've had this major unsolved problem for a long time. Why haven't they tried a different path? Now, I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it at the end. It turns out to relate to what evolutionary theory does for human beings. All right, now, I'm going to lay out this problem. Again, there's a little more biological detail here, but I think it will be accessible to you. The discovery that I'm about to describe won the Nobel Prize in medicine and physiology in 1995, and it was, the work was done by these two scientists in Germany in the late 1970s, early 80s. Christiana Nusslein Folhard and Eric Wieschaus. I remember when these papers came out. I was a kid, but I was in love with biology, and these papers were so exciting that eventually they ended up catching the attention of the Nobel Committee. Now, they were working with fruit flies, and what they did was a kind of reverse engineering. Okay, so here's our fruit fly, Drosophila, and Drosophila like us, starts its life as a single cell, a fertilized egg. Most animals start their life that way. Single cell that's been fertilized by a sperm. 
Now, that egg is going to begin to an unfolding series of developmental decisions that, if all goes well, will lead to the adult fly. It's reproductively capable and can start the process all over again. So I'll illustrate that by this expanding cone of developmental decisions where what's happening is this cell is going to give rise to a lot of daughter cells and eventually millions of them that will make up that fly. Now, what Nussline, Fohart, and Wieschhaus said is if we want to understand how that happens, how that's controlled, that whole process, we need to break it in various ways. We'll disrupt the process at various points along the way and we'll see what the consequences are. So they induced mutations that were expressed at different times during that developmental process to see what the consequences would be for the fly. Just the way that if I gave you a complex system that you hadn't seen before, one way you could figure out how it worked is to disconnect things and see what the effect is on the machine as a whole. Okay, now here's what they found. Well, part of what they found anyway. I'll tell you what this depicts. Flies, as you know, go through a maggot stage, a larval stage. So this here on the left, that's the normal form of the maggot or the larva of the fly. So we have four columns here, and on the left-hand side of each of them is the normal form of the larva. On the right-hand side is the mutant form. So the areas colored in pink, here and here, for instance, the mutations that they induced knocked out these regions of the larva. And this is the result, this little, very, very diminished maggot. And you can see that the mutations affect different regions of the, of the uh, maggot. Now, you do that enough, you disrupt enough genes, you can figure out what genes do I need to build a normal fly? Because I'm breaking it in various ways, and I see that you know, the outcome is not good. In fact, all of these mutants on the right-hand side here, all of these mutants in the right-hand columns, they're all dead. This is an awful way to think about it, but it's actually happened to my family, to one of my siblings. He had a daughter who was born who had a trisomy. I think it was trisomy 18. Anyway, she had a major mutation. She lived for six weeks. That mutation was so profound, it affected so many different systems of her body, she never stood a chance. She never had a chance. The last thing that any human parent wants to hear in a hospital obstetrics waiting room is for the doctor to come in and say, Mr. Nelson, I'm sorry to inform you, but your daughter has a macromutation makes you sick just to hear the words because we know what the consequences are in human beings for these kinds of major changes. They are enormously destructive to the creature in which they arise because they affect so many different systems. Well, that's just what's happening with these flies. These are all macromutations and they destroy the fly. So all of these forms on these right-hand sides, they're all dead. All right, now, it's not hard to understand why. If you think about it, you look at that cone a mutation that occurs here early on is going to have much more destructive consequences than one that occurs later because it's going to affect a lot more cells. So let's suppose we have a mutation that arises here late in development. It might affect only a few cells. So you can have lots of mutations in fruit flies that will change their bristle number or that will change the venation in their wings or the color of their eyes and so forth. But most of the rest of the fly is okay, so they actually survive and can reproduce. Here's what you don't see. A mutation expressed here that affects everything. What that does is it crashes the whole system. 
Now, the paradox arises because that's where mutations have to occur to change the overall body plan of the organism. It's a three-step argument. We know this from developmental biology. This is how animals are actually built, step-by-step by a developmental process, where the early stages determine what comes later. Okay? That's well established from biology. Now, if we want to change the form of the fly, what that means is we have to have mutations that occur early on, early in the process, because that's where the body plan is first put in place. Now the paradox. Those are the mutations that are least likely to be tolerated by any developing animal. And this is well established from fruit flies, worms, mice, chickens, zebrafish, all the major systems used of developmental biologists to understand how development works. When you have these early arising mutations, you crash the system. But those are the ones that you need for macroevolution to happen. So you put all those pieces together, and there's simply no reason to think macroevolution would ever occur. Because if you're going to change the overall form of an organism, the kinds of mutations that are required will destroy that organism. This is well-known. It's a well-known puzzle in evolutionary theory, and the question is, why don't they take it more seriously? Here's the problem, and I said I would come back to this. If you can't pass on the variations you need, you're a dead end. The problem is the variations needed for macroevolution destroy the system. Here's another way to think about this in terms of a magic bridge. You have lots of these landscapes here in Hawaii, big valleys you know, between mountains. Put a bridge between them, okay? But it's magic in the following sense. Be right at home in any Indiana Jones movie. You start over here on the left, start walking out on the bridge. As long as you keep moving, the bridge will be there beneath your feet. The minute you stop to look over the side or turn around or just you know, sort of wander off looking at something, the bridge disappears and you plunge down 1,000 feet. Animal development is very much like that. Once that first cell begins to divide, it's got to get all the way over to the adult to start the process again. So if we're a cell over here, we begin to divide, we've got to get all the way across here to the adult form. But here's the kicker for natural selection. It's only when you get to the far side that reproductive capability arises, and reproductive capability is a necessary condition for natural selection. So how did natural selection build that bridge when one of its necessary conditions is all the way over here? Again, this is a problem well known to evolution, and it's never been solved. We'll finish with the butterflies. If I needed an example you know, to put on a postcard to persuade me of the reality of intelligent design, I would take the North American monarch. It's a female. The male has little black spots on either side of its abdomen right about there where he sort of stores cologne. <laughs> pheromones, you know. My wife and I were at the overwintering site in Mexico a couple of years ago where North American monarchs go to spend the winter, and it was like being in a singles bar at about 11 o'clock at night, you know. The males are all blasting females with their pheromones. Hey, baby. <laughs> now, I'm showing you this picture now so it doesn't seem weird later on. This is Houdini being lowered by his feet into a box of water with locks, and three of his assistants are there. Why is he going in there? Well, he's going to do a stunt. What's he not going to let himself do? He's not going into that water box without a plan to get out and probably two backup plans in case the first one fails. Okay, so keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it. 
Here's the monarch life cycle, familiar to you probably from high school biology. There's the egg. There's, I'm going to be a beautiful butterfly, you know, eating machine that turns into the chrysalis, that turns into the adults. It's an amazing process. This is the amazing stage, the chrysalis itself. Seven to ten days, the caterpillar goes into there and digests itself, basically down to a molecular soup. I was in a lab in Florida making a movie about this. It's actually for sale out there at the table. And one of these broke open accidentally. And the contents, when they pour out onto the tabletop, look like clear jello. You cannot make out anything, not a caterpillar and not a butterfly. What's happening? Well, the caterpillar is digesting itself away. And very small populations of cells that were sort of hidden away in the caterpillar are now turning into the adult butterfly to the legs and wings and structures that you see in that beautiful monarch. Now, skip that. Let's go back to Houdini. I told you, and you know, he's not going into that water box unless he has a plan to get out, and probably a couple of backups. Because the alternative is death. You know, I've seen clips on the internet. There's a lot of grisly things on the internet. And one of them is of an amateur magician who built a box in sand and kid was in his 20s, and he didn't have a backup plan. The box collapsed, and before they could get him out, he suffocated. It's dangerous business to do this if you're a magician. Well, think about what the caterpillar faces from the perspective of evolution. Let's suppose you've got a caterpillar that evolves some way to build one of these, right? And he digests away, or she, most of their tissues, and that's where they stop. It's like, okay, I've got myself a chrysalis, I've turned myself into soup, now what? You're not going to go into that stage unless you have the plan to get out. Unless you have the genetic instructions to get you out the other side. How did natural selection build that? How did natural selection, without any foresight, this is a blind physical process, incrementally break down a caterpillar, somehow evolve the chrysalis stage, and then yet you know, because it has no foresight, can't look to the future, find a way to build the adult butterfly. If this happened by an evolutionary process, it was a miracle. The only way that you can have a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly is if you have some kind of cause that can see the whole life cycle. And the only kind of cause that can do that is intelligence. If you want butterflies, you need all of this, all at the same time. It's well established from biology. The problem is, are we going to let the evidence tell us what it's trying to tell us? I want to tell you about a hypothesis from an evolutionary standpoint to try to explain this that shows the desperation that arises when you avoid the obvious inference, which is this is caused by intelligence, and try to find a natural explanation. This is a zoologist at the University of Liverpool whose courage I admire. I admire him for publishing this paper. It was very risky. Because he started by saying the Darwinian explanation doesn't work. He says it's simply bizarre. It could not have happened by any kind of Darwinian process. So that's his opening argument in this paper. And this paper, by the way, when it was published, created such a stink that the journal that published it changed the rules for how they accepted papers, never to allow a paper like this again. So here's his explanation. You start with something called a velvet worm. I don't know if you have these here in Hawaii. We don't have them in North America, continental North America. They're rather exotic creatures. You find them in Australia, but they kind of look like a caterpillar, doesn't it? Little stubby legs, tubular body. It's not a caterpillar, but it sort of looks like one. So he said, start with that, and 
get yourself some insect that doesn't have metamorphosis. So if you ever see a grasshopper, a baby grasshopper, it looks like an adult grasshopper, just real small. Grasshoppers don't grow through metamorphosis the way that butterflies do. Okay, so let's go back to our singles bar. We've got the velvet worm. We've got the grasshopper. They exchange a long look across the room and fertile hybrid. Somehow they get together and join, join their families. Okay, that's never going to happen, ever. That would be like you hybridizing with a clam, okay? <laughs> but this zoologist had the courage to publish this crazy idea because he said for 150 years we've been trying the Darwinian story and it just doesn't work. And this was his solution to the problem. But my view is that when the evidence in front of you points to intelligence, the rational thing to do, it's not the religious thing, it's not the spiritual thing, it's the rational, intelligent thing, is to say this evidence indicates cause by a mind, like mine, but vastly more powerful. That's the clear signal, and that's what I'm going to accept scientifically. That's the intelligent, sensible thing to do. Anyway, let's stop. Thank you very much. This concludes part two of Dr. Paul Nelson's message of Could Evolution Build the Animals? If you would like to hear this message in its entirety, along with all of the seminars from this past year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by this show, please support Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us again right here next week as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers.